Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Pray with me, please. Lord, it's been such a great service so far. I just love being around your people. And like Lisa's saying, there is really no better place to be than to be right here today. There is nowhere else I'd rather be. I pray, Lord, you take your word now. Teach us. Exhort us, convict us, whatever your word needs to do. We are open to your Holy Spirit. We ask in your name. Amen. Welcome back to our final study in 2 Samuel, which we started on October 22nd, 2017. Hope you've enjoyed studying it as much as I've enjoyed teaching it. Look at verse 4 with me. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. If you remember from last week, we learned that God was angry with Israel for some unspecified reason. And so he allowed Satan to tempt David with the sin of pride that was already lying dormant in David's heart. Now I realize that can be kind of difficult for us to wrap our heads around. Maybe think of it this way. Imagine you see a mouse in your kitchen. If you went outside and got your cat and put it in the same room as that mouse, you know very well that that cat is going to kill that mouse. Now your cat in no way is being coerced by you. You didn't make your cat kill that mouse. That cat was simply acting according to its nature. But by putting that cat into the room, you knew what was going to happen. So in a certain sense, God allows Satan and David to do what they already wanted to do. But like in our mouse analogy, God uses that to accomplish his purpose without affecting the free will of anyone. Now we saw last week that Joab tried to talk David out of counting the people. And now in verse 4 we learn that even the captains of David's army also weigh in and try to dissuade David from doing this. Now Bible scholars are befuddled by what David did. Was he preparing for a huge military exercise? Or was it because he had nothing to do that he resorted to counting numbers? Everything was going great for David at this time in his life. So despite what Kenneth Copeland says, prosperity can sometimes actually endanger our relationship with God. Sometimes it's more difficult to carry a full cup than an empty cup. Notice again that even David's commanders are trying to talk him out of doing this. They're saying, David... We've been following you for 40 years. 
You're the one who taught us that God was our security. And now here, in this final stretch of your life, you're going to model something different and give the impression to our nation that our security lies in our military strength instead of the providence of God? David, do you remember what you wrote in Psalm 33? No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his mercy. Now one thing that has been a mark of David's life is whenever he has sinned, he has always honored reproof. He even said, Let not my head refuse it. Let it be oil upon my head, and let the righteous smite me in kindness. He was always quick to accept a rebuke. Except on two occasions. One, when a soldier informed him that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and now once again in the account before us this morning. And so despite the pleadings of those around him, the king's word prevailed. Look at verse 5. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aurora on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they camped to Gilead into the land of Tathemhachi, they came to Danyan, that's probably not right, and around the Sidon, and they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to south Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem, and at the end of nine months and twenty days, then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now we need to take a moment and point out that numbering is not necessarily wrong. For instance, Moses numbered the fighting men of Israel in preparation for a battle. Saul numbered the Israelites to defend the people of Jabesh-Gilead by fighting the Ammonites. And David numbered those loyal to him in preparation for defending himself against an attack by his son, Absalom. In none of those cases was numbering wrong. The act of numbering the people was in itself not sinful. But David acted for motives unworthy of the delegated king of Israel. He simply did it from pride and vainglory. And so the issue isn't what David did as much as the issue is why David did it. Joab and his captain spent the next nine months and 20 days counting the Israelites 21 years old and upward who were fit for military service. As a side note, sometimes God's greatest judgment is to simply let us have our own way. It's the old thing where your mother would say, fine, go ahead, but if you break both your legs, don't come running back to me. At the end of the county, the census showed there were 1.3 million men at David's disposal. Verse 10, please. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. 
at least six times in Scripture we find David confessing, I have sinned. Just a few chapters ago, when he confessed his sins of adultery and murder, David said, I have sinned. But when he confessed the numbering of the people, he said, not only have I sinned, but I have in fact sinned greatly. As we pointed out last week, most of us would consider his sins relating to Bathsheba far worse than the sins of numbering the people, and far more foolish. But David saw the enormity of what he had done. You see, David's sins with Bathsheba took the lives of four David's sons, plus the wife of Uriah, and a few valiant men. But after the census, God sent a plague that took the lives of 70,000 people. Look at verse 11. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Three choices were given, and they were all terrible. Seven years of famine, three months of flight, or three days of pestilence. Each punishment would affect Israel in a different and profound way. In famine, the fields burn up and blow away, and the brooks carry no water. And there is despair in every dwelling, forcing the people into economic hardship. And fleeing from his enemies, the images of running from the swords of his enemies are simply too much for David to endure. The other choice is three days of pestilence in which the land would be filled with corpses strewn about, accompanied by the tears and wailing of widows and orphans. What would you have done if you were the king and you knew that you must open the floodgates to one of these horrific judgments? And before we object to this severe punishment, Remember that we do not know what offense had initially kindled the Lord's anger. We are therefore hardly in a position to judge the punishment as excessive. Indeed, the severity of the punishment tells us that the offense must have been great in the Lord's eyes. I do think it is interesting that God knows how to attack our sin. What do I mean? What in our account is David most proud of? The number of people under his rule. What is God going to attack through his judgment? The number of people under his rule. God is going to go right at the knees of the very thing David was taking credit for. He still does that today, by the way. The father is faithful to scourge, chasten, and punish his children. Why? Because he loves us. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit, even though he was forgiven by the Lord, he was still not allowed back into the garden of innocence. 
When Moses sinned against the Lord in smiting the rock, thereby depicting the Father as being angry when he wasn't, the Lord prevented him from entering the promised land. What I want us to understand is that it is true. God will forgive his people. He gives peace to his people, but he doesn't pamper his people. He's far too good of a father to do that. Verse 14, please. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Many have questions why the people should have, should have had to suffer for David's sin. But remember, we've already answered that question. David's actions and his punishment were not just the result of his own sinfulness. It was a consequence of the sin of all the people. Once again, I remind us, the anger of God was kindled first against Israel. It was Israel who had sinned against God. Thus, David's numbering of Israel and its consequences was originally brought about as a result of the people's sinfulness and disobedience. And because of that, Israel would suffer for their own sins. So David chose door number three. For three days, an angel of the Lord killed 70,000 people all over Israel. We will soon see this angel floating in the air with a drawn sword over the city of Jerusalem. It looks like the entire city is next. Also, please note that David wisely decides to follow the merciful hands of God instead of the hands of fickle men. Always remember this. God may have to judge harshly, but he is never cruel. You can't say that about mankind. Not only that, when we fail, we can count on God to always be merciful when we repent. I read a true story this week that left me shaking my head. Let me read it to you. When playing the game of Monopoly, one of the best cards to have is the famous get-out-of-jail-free card. But when you're playing the game of real life, the card doesn't work quite so well. At least that's what a man in Minnesota found out recently. He was pulled over when an officer saw that he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. And also the car he was driving was registered to someone else who was wanted on a warrant. Turns out the driver himself was a fugitive. But no worries, because the man actually pulled out a Monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card that he always carried with him for just such an emergency. Now, I'm sure the car probably provided a few laughs for law enforcement, but the man still landed himself in jail. The county sheriff's office posted on social media about the incident, saying, We appreciate the humor and give him an A for effort. Isn't it a relief that we don't have to try car tricks on God or try to receive his mercy? That we receive more than an A for effort when we stumble and fall. As the writer of Hebrews declares, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what David did here, and that's what we should do every single time we blow it. 
Verse 15, please. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning of the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of Israel died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. As I see that angel of the Lord standing there with uplifted arm, ready to smite Jerusalem with his sword, I cannot help but think back to Abraham, who also had his hand lifted up, ready to plunge the knife into his beloved son Isaac. It took place at the very same location, Mount Moriah. And both times God stayed the hand from them taking the life, because he had a better sacrifice that would come later, one that would take away the sins of the world. And as you may know, the temple was built on that spot, on Mount Moriah. And it was there that sacrifices were offered, which stayed the judging hand of God. But best of all, it was on a hill not far away at all, Mount Calvary, where the hand of God came down upon his beloved son. And because of this sacrifice, Men never need suffer the eternal wrath of God because of their sins. It was because of that sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that the offer of eternal salvation has come to all of us. Look at verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep... What have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. David's shepherd's heart was broken because of this judgment, and he pleaded with the Lord to punish him instead. We do know, however, David was mistaken to think that these people were innocent. You know, when we are tempted to rebel against God... We need to remember this. When we make unwise and ungodly decisions, there is always a price to pay. Please remember, sin always carries a price tag with it. Nobody gets away with sin. Nobody. It robs us of our joy, peace, and contentment. It brings bondage, misery, pain, to those affected by our actions. And it has a trickle-down effect to every other area of our lives. I think it's interesting that David had been proud, it seems, and the people, at least for a time, had become just numbers to him. But now the people are people again. Verse 18 and Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming towards him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, 
that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Now just imagine Aruna's plight. His occupation is farming. And farming requires oxen, oxen and the yoke and the threshing implements. So let's look at his offer in this context. He is offering the land. He is offering the oxen. And he's offering the threshing implements. In other words, Aruna is willing to go bankrupt to meet the higher need of the king. I wonder if we're willing to do the same thing. Or are we like the farmer I read about this week? He had a cow that gave birth to twin calves. That afternoon at the supper table, he told his wife, Old Bessie had twins today. You know, honey, we're going to give one of those calves to the Lord, and we're going to keep the other one. A couple of days later, he was rather quiet and solemn, and his wife asked what was wrong. He said, well, I was in the barn today, and I noticed that the Lord's calf has died. Isn't that how a lot of us sacrifice to God also? We've got time to go to Walmart, watch TV, live on Facebook, chat with friends, and sleep in. But not enough time to pray more than five minutes, or read a chapter in the Bible, or come to church two hours a week. What is our level of sacrifice? I pray that searches us, starting with me. Verse 24, please. Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. As we have seen, Aruna offered to provide all David needed without him having to incur any type of cost to himself. But David refused. He would not seek to relate to God on the basis of a second-hand faith because he knew that God would not relate to him on such a basis. God pursues us in order to have a relationship with us. And that cannot be done second-handed, although many people try. What do I mean? A second-hand faith tends to be rather vague and is void of the power of God to transform. You can't be saved depending on the faith of another, and you can't serve depending on the faith of another. Whether it's responding to the call of salvation or the call to service, Obedience requires a personal commitment from us. It has been pointed out that we have too many hitchhikers in the church today. A hitchhiker says, 
If you furnish the car, the gas, attend to the repair and the upkeep, supply the insurance, I'll ride with you. But you must be going my way, and if I have an accident, I'll sue you. Like that, too many people in churches have that same attitude that says, you pay for the program, the personnel, the property, and the coffee and the donuts, and I'll go along for the ride. But just know this, if things don't suit me, or I'm offended in any way, I will let you know by criticizing you. And if that doesn't work, I'll just hit your ride with another church. I ask you, is that commitment? Some people only come to church when they feel like it. They may not have slept well or had a bad week or they just woke up grumpy. They think to themselves, I think I'll just go back to sleep and take off the day on the Lord. I wonder if that would work with my boss. She calls and asks, Are you sick? <laughs> Not really, I say. I just don't feel like it this morning. I was up a little late last night, and I don't know, I've not been sleeping too well, but look, I promise I'll do my best to attend work tomorrow. Now, I'm not making any promises or anything, but I will give it a try. How do you think that would go for me? Can you say unemployment? Now, why wouldn't I tell my boss that? Because my job is very important to me. How much more should the kingdom of God hold that kind of importance in my life? Now, I'm not talking about if you are really sick. You ought to stay home if you are truly sick. And for no other reason, just not to pass your germs around. I mean, we want to be a sharing church, but not that kind of sharing. But we should be faithful to our church, not on the basis of how we feel, but because it honors God for us to be in church. Because it's good for my own spiritual growth to be in church. And because that might be the Sunday I'll finally get a grip on a key area of my life through the preaching of God's Word. But if I'm going to give something to God, it has to cost me. I need to feel it. Paul commends the Macedonians for this very thing. In 2 Corinthians 8, he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now listen to this. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, employing us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and fellowship of the ministering to the saints. If you want to know what is truly important in your life, all you have to do is look in two places, your checkbook and your calendar. For where we spend our time and where we spend our money reveals what is the most important thing in our lives. Just know that I'm not directing this at anyone personally. If you didn't know, I have no idea what anyone in this church gives. We have set it up that way from the very beginning. So if this is offending you, 
It's not Pastor Bill. It's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> anyway, David, a man with some understanding of God's grace, understood this. You don't call something a sacrifice if it doesn't cost you anything. So you're thinking, so why sacrifice then? Grace is the answer to that question. Grace is God giving us more than what we deserve. It's God giving us favor and kindness, and what we really deserve is his wrath. It would be like the IRS not only forgiving you for 25 years of back taxes, but also paying off your mortgage. Don't hold your breath on that one. And really, the personal cost for a gift can be one of the most important features. If it costs us a lot, it means more to someone. An African boy listened intently as the teacher explained why Christians give each other presents on Christmas. She said, The gift is an expression of our joy over the birth of Christ and our love for each other. When Christmas Day came, the boy brought the teacher an exquisitely beautiful seashell. She was touched. She said, Where did you ever find such a beautiful shell? The boy told her there was only one spot that you could find it. It was in a particular bay several miles away. She said, Why, it's gorgeous, but you shouldn't have walked all that way to get me a gift. The boy's eyes brightened. He told her, Long walk, part of gift. Like that boy, David understood that whatever he did that day needed to honor God and cost him. God didn't need David's money. God wanted David's heart. As we finish up this morning, even though this was another low spot in David's life, God also took this and worked everything for good. Because as I said earlier, it's on this spot that the temple would be built by Solomon. It is interesting that we are told in verses 21 and 25 that it was in that location that the plague was withdrawn. So God intended Mount Moriah to be known as the place where he stopped the plague in response to the sacrifice of a king. And all of that was a picture of what would follow on that mount, just a stone's throw to the north. A thousand years later, when a greater king, that is God the Father, would stop a greater plague, the plague of sin, by offering a greater sacrifice, the sacrifice of his son on a cross, to end the plague of sin. The imagery is beautiful and is a great place for us to end the book. As you may know, we go back and forth between the Old and the New Testaments after we finish a book. The next New Testament book would have been the book of Galatians, but since it's been over a decade since we went through a gospel together, I felt led to go through the Gospel of John, which we will start next. Father, we do thank you for the things that we have learned from David's life, both good and bad. And I pray, Father, that we would take those things, and it just wouldn't be stories, but we would actually implement them into our lives, that we may live holier lives and walk closer with you. Help us to be obedient. Help us to sacrifice our lives for the one who sacrificed everything for us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.